welcome to the sixth episode of the official SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Welcome back, everybody. Or if this is your first time, welcome for the first time. I'm in Kermend, a little town in Hungary, and but I'm virtually in Holland, in the Netherlands. I'm with Professor Mark Benninga of Amsterdam, and I think Mark and Benninga are the only two words that I can say correctly in Dutch. We've just been through a little teaching session on how to say, for example, the name of the wonderful flower garden, Kirkenhof. Did I get that right, Mark? No. Well, <laughs> almost, almost. Uh, like you pronounce my name, which is not Benninga, but the real Dutch pronunciation is Benninga, the ugly G from in Dutch. I give up. Professor Benningha, <laughs> Professor Benningha and I are then now going to be having a little bit of a chat on his specialty within pediatric gastroenterology, which is disorders of bowel function that have to do with peristalsis, with motion, with defecation. And I think we ought to start with the question of when do people realize that there's a problem? with their baby. That's a nice start, Alex, uh, to start in the beginning of life. Um, well, it depends um, because there are, well, two important matters. So first of all, if the child doesn't have meconium, the first stools, the, the uh, beautiful color of dark green and black, uh, has to appear. Uh, and in 99% of all babies, it appears uh, before um, in the first 48 hours. So if you notice that your baby um, doesn't feel well and didn't have any stools in the first 48 hours, um, then there might be a real problem. Because then... Uh, as you know, as a pathologist, then it might be the rare disease called Hirschsprung's disease. Um, in all other cases, um, in more than 95% of all children, young and older children, we actually don't know what's going on. Uh, and we do think that most of the children um, withhold uh, their stools, uh, which is probably the main uh, characteristic to uh, become constipated. And this can happen at every age. So that can become in the, in the first year of life, uh, during toilet training, uh, when you're older. Um, and then, well, the parents notice that their children don't defecate. And sometimes in the very young child, they don't eat. But in the older children, for instance, they don't defecate, but they also have fecal incontinence. And then some people think they're not toilet trained but then it appears to be associated with constipation. So the answer is it's not very simple, um, but this is what it is. You touched on an awful lot of stuff there, and you went at high speed. So I'm going to go back to the beginning again and ask us to take it. I think one of the advantages of not being a pediatric gastroenterologist as I approach this job of moderating is that I feel perfectly happy in saying, I don't get that. Tell me more. What's going on here? So, right, the baby can go home without having passed a meconium stool. But you tell the mom, you tell the dad, 
if the baby doesn't have one of those dark inky green stool, dark inky green stools, then you get in touch with us because something might not be right, right? So the baby has an initial stool. What do you tell parents about a normal stooling pattern? Do you do you do you bother to tell them anything? Oh, <laughs> uh, Alex, again, you touch a difficult topic. Um, so what we did to uh, reassure parents, um, we had a we had a PhD, uh, I think almost ten years ago, answering your question because. Uh, yes, uh-huh. we do know that uh, babies have uh, frequent school stools. So in the majority of babies who are uh, breastfed, for instance, they have stools after every uh, uh, feeding. Um, the same is true after having bottle feeding. Uh, but then parents are always um, a little anxious about the color, about the... Uh, the consistency of the stools. So this very nice PhD and myself, we bought ourselves a a camera and made thousands of pictures of babies in the first year of life and turned this in what we call the Amsterdam infant stool scale. Uh, And uh, so there is a list of pictures which shows you the consistency um, uh, and... (coughs) Um, and the mount and the color of the stools in the first year of life. So you've got green seedy, you've got yellow mushy, you've got brown sticky, okay. Do you give a copy of this book to every baby, every every, every parents who takes a baby home from your unit? No, I I, I don't do that, but uh, in in Holland and in every country it's probably different. We have healthy uh, baby clinics, uh, and, and they sometimes provide these pictures for parents who are um, well are interested in in all these colors and amounts of of stool but for instance in Taiwan they they made a very nice stool skill because they wanted to pick up uh, biliary atresia which is is far more common uh, in that side of the world than than in our part of the world uh, to um, making these people aware that the color of stools and that's uh, very important if the color is pale uh, this is associated uh, as you know with uh, with for instance biliary atresia and this and and so what i think they do there is that they indeed give all the parents with new babies these these uh, stool cards but this is particularly for biliary atresia and not for constipation of course that sounds like a brilliant idea and uh- I'm sure that it's helped, actually, in it terms of enormously. bringing kids yes, in yes. Bef- when, uh, when the Kasai hepatic portoenterostomy can still do some good. Yes. Well, we're not doing it in Holland because it's just too seldom a disease, biliary atresia. Okay. But <laughs> you can't do everything. I understand. But the, 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 the home visitor, the nurse who comes and takes a look at mom, takes a look at the baby, has that in mind understands, knows what the stools ought to look like. I guess the next thought would be, hmm, if the baby isn't stooling appropriately, then you say to yourself, maybe there is a problem with innervation, or maybe there's a problem with the stool itself. When do you get your cystic fibrosis tests back as part of routine newborn screening? Well, Alex, um, this is a difficult question for me because I don't exactly know the answer. Um, 
indeed, uh, cystic fibrosis will be screened in the Netherlands. And yes, it will be uh, performed in the first week of life. But I don't exactly know when uh, we get the results back. But um, as you know, cystic fibrosis, like Hirschsprung's disease, is a very rare disease. So if there is what we call a meconium plug, um, then indeed we always think about these uh, diseases. Uh, but then sometimes you have to wait for the, for the result. Gotcha, gotcha. Then I suppose you also come down to thinking about, well, we've done the biopsy specimens and the hero histopathologist has reported from her laboratory that there are ganglion cells present and that the innervation pattern appears normal in the biopsies that were sent. Now you have to start to think about anatomy, don't you? Anatomy and how the pelvic floor and its innervation seem to be working. Or have I got the sequence wrong? No, 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 you're, you're totally correct. Uh, however, I, if I honestly think and answer your question, um, I don't think that pediatric gastroenterologists will think about this mechanism that much. Although I have to say, uh, for instance, um, we, we, well, since many years, we use the so-called Rome criteria. Uh, and one of the, the clinical entities within these Rome criteria is infant dyskesia. Um, and, uh, well, if you define infant dyskesia, you think about little infants who turn red uh, and scream uh, before or during defecation, and then mm. all the problems mm. are gone. We have no clue what happened and what happens. Uh, but we do think, and this comes back to your questions, question that these children contract rather than relax uh, their sphincter complex during defecation. We can, of course, never measure this because we have no tools to do this, but this is our hypothesis. But again, um, in, in many children who uh, develop constipation in the first year of life, we still think that these children contra contract rather than relax their pelvic floor muscles and sphincter muscles. Um, and we suggest that this is based on painful defecation. Uh, and well, many infants in the first year of life, they start to develop constipation after the change, uh, for instance, um, uh, from breastfeeding to uh, formula feeding. And then the consistency of stools changes, becomes harder for a, sh a short period. And this might be the reason this, that these children contract rather than relax their, their, their pelvic floor muscles. So that's how we think about it. If I go back to your question about motility and anatomy, well, I, I, I really don't have the answer because we don't have the possibility to measure, for instance, colonic motility. Never, there's no publication so far who were able to do this. And this is because it's hardly impossible to um, to put a catheter in the colon and let it be there for a, mm -hmm. a certain mm -hmm. period. So that's why, why we don't have... Um, uh, this answer. Another thing is, uh, and this is the, the, the patients I see, some of these children already have a uh, have severe constipation, and if we find for if we look for causes, we can't find them. And then the question always appears: Are these children born, for instance, with a megarectum? Huh. And again, and again, there's no answer because we don't have normal values. Um, as you know, the, ra the radiation exposure is very high. So again, this is not a common test for these children to answer your question. 
I've got... <clears throat> Mark, here in your office is a six-month-old who is having difficulty with defecation. And you've got a worried mama. Now what? So, you are lucky as a pathologist. You never, never come across these these mothers who are anxious and begging you to help her and her baby with the problem. And indeed, we as gastroenterologists, we do, as, of course, the general pediatricians. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I really take the time to, uh, to, to listen to her story. I ask about meconium production. I ask about uh, breastfeeding. I ask about formula feeding. Sometimes I ask for allergies, although I think mm. it's, it's hardly... Uh, it's hardly um, presence in uh, present in these in these little babies, and then of course I ask for the defecation pattern, and I, I ask how frequent do these babies have defecation? Because, well, in really worried mothers, they sometimes make the problem bigger than it is. Uh, so if I ask for the defecation problem, to me it can be uh, normal if the the child defecates five ter times per week, and she is worried because it hasn't def defecation every single day. But if the problems are really bad, um, so the child is crying and not thriving uh, and has defecation once a week um, and is in pain, then of course I have to do something. Go on. I'm, I'm trying to work the pump handle here, Mark. What do you do in a case like that? Okay, so then I really need to do something. So uh, if the meconium production is completely normal, uh -huh. uh, and I have no sign of a, an organic disease, which is the case in 98% of all children I see, uh, then I start treatment immediately. And, and I never use a wait-and-see policy, which uh, what well many general practitioners uh, and general doctors in the, in the Netherlands do. They give some advices about fibers, and they give some uh, advices about putting oil uh, into the, the formula, uh, giving advices about um, how much the, 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 the baby should drink, I never do this because from research we do know that it's not helpful at all. And the longer you wait with treating these babies, it's, even, it's, it's more difficult uh, to help them really properly. So I immediately start, if I listen to this, uh, with laxatives. Laxatives. I can see that it would be more difficult the more reinforcement this loop of defecation, pain, withholding of stool, attempts at defecation, pain, further withholding of stool, that's a self-reinforcing circle, isn't it? So laxatives are your first step. Yes, because what, what we do think, again, why do we give laxatives? As you summarized, we think it's based on pain, and pain leads to withholding, uh, and we uh, need to get rid of um, this vicious circle uh, and uh, well and change uh, the, the the setting of the baby and make them conscious that defecation is not painful and how do you get rid of pain well you try to make the defecation more easy by giving them laxatives and then uh, the, the the major and most important advice to these mothers but also to the doctors don't do it for a week but continue it for at least two or three months because laxatives are not um, uh, not, not dangerous, you can't get uh, used to it, uh, there are no side effects, so please use them as long as needed. 
it takes a long time to forget something that hurts. Yes. Yeah. And so the idea of giving the baby a good long spell, a good long spell of laxative treatment makes absolute sense to me. Right. Um, well, I'm back with little Johan. It's, he's now 12 months old. Yes. I've got all of the <laughs> empty laxative bottles in my bag to show. See, I gave them all to you. I did. I really did. Yes. And he's still not quite right. Okay. What are, which way are your thoughts going now? Well, um, in principle, my thoughts are exactly the same. Uh, and that's based on experience. It's, it's, it's bad to, to say this, but it's experience that in most of these cases, it, it's still functional. Of course, many people look for hypothyroidism and celiac disease and uh, cow's milk allergy. But there are very nice papers which show that if you only have symptoms of constipation and, and no other, other sign for these kind of diseases, uh, then the chance of having these diseases is less than 1%. So again, uh, we need to treat these children and then it's difficult. Uh, I play with, with different laxatives. So uh, I use polyethylene glycol, I use lactulose, but also uh, I use in these cases bisacodyl because bisacodyl has a different mechanism uh, and, uh, in, in, and enhances uh, contractions in the colon. So if you combine uh -huh. this uh, with, for instance, polyethylene glycol or lactulose, you might have a better chance to evacuate. But then, of course, I know your question after this answer will be, okay, but the, chill, the child didn't respond uh, with intensifying uh, this uh, laxative schedule. Okay, Damn. Alex. Okay, <laughs> he's, he's Alex. <laughs> and this for you as he's a ahead of me. Okay. Yeah, and this for you as a English-speaking uh, doctor um, uh -huh. is a problem because then these ugly Dutch people are hey. not afraid. <laughs> are not afraid to use uh, uh, either uh, rectal irrigation or even enemas because it's so important to get the to to get the the, the, the child in the, in a different perspective uh, because if he if he or she still withholds stools and only defecates once a week with a lot of pain um, with a lot of uh, feeding problems then it's really necessary to do more than only oral laxative so i'm not afraid to give it uh, and mm -hmm. oh, i'm mm -hmm. even not afraid to give it for a longer period gotcha yeah you've you were running into some deadlines here aren't we with the child needing to be put in the mom wants to get back to work if she doesn't have other kids to take care of and there's a spot in the kindergarten in the nursery and that kid is going to be under somebody else's care you're going to have to time is pressing here uh -huh. okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay again this is a very difficult question because we uh indeed face these these problems in the Netherlands with kindergartens and I again I don't know how it is in the rest of the world but if children uh, don't defecate or more importantly have fecal incontinence which is the major sign of constipation later in life then uh, the people who are working in these kindergartens are not willing to uh, to change the, the diapers uh, so then these parents have a huge problem because uh, the people at the kindergarten think or say to the parents, okay, your child is not toilet trained, which is not the case. They are severely constipated. Uh, and we don't want to change the diaper. We have no time for doing that. So you have to come in yourself and change the, the diaper yourself. 
That's hard line. I know, I know, but I, I'm I'm always willing to call these people in the kindergarten and explain them what constipation is, uh, that it's very common, uh, like uh, 3 to 10% of the children worldwide face these problems, uh, and that it's associated with abdominal pain and uh, with fecal incontinence, uh, and it's not a problem of toilet training. And if they are willing to help these parents who face these problems every day and also sometimes every hour of the day. Well, by now we've got a mom, or a set of parents, excuse me, we've got a set of parents and a child whose relationship to each other is maybe not what it should be. Mark, you're laughing at me. <laughs> is the, I, I don't know these people. We, I only see all these very happy parents, all these very happy parents without any problems. Yeah. So what's your question about these parents? Because to be honest, how many people are really um, happy with each other if you face these daily problems? You have to be strong. You have to be strong, but you also have to be able to call on support and maybe support from people who are particularly well-trained in dealing with these issues. Mm -hmm. Do you have a team of psychologists in your encopresis clinic? So, again, Alex, your uh, question is very valid. Um, if parents can't get along with each other uh, and it indeed to my opinion, uh, influences uh, the child, but not only defecation, I think the whole behavior. Uh, but I like to stress that, um, yes, I send these uh, children to a psychologist I, uh, I work with um, very closely, um, but I never uh, leave these parents and children alone. Um, so I take care of the, the, the laxative issues and, and try to help them and teach them how to do this and don't stop them even if uh, their, their grandparents or the neighbors say tell them to, to stop the laxatives. Um, and, the, and of course the, the psychologist can help uh, the parents to uh, address the other issues. And moreover, uh, we showed and I was really surprised that approximately 30% of the patients with constipation coming to my outpatient clinic had a form of behavior problems like uh, ADHD or for instance autism and of course I'm a pediatrician and these problems should be tackled by uh, other he healthcare pro professionals. It's a complicated business. No, I, I, I was confident that you wouldn't withdraw your support and throw them into the laps of the psychologists <laughs> because there still is a problem that needs to be dealt with in terms of laxatives and enemas. Yes. Laxatives and enemas. But you've been utilizing new pharmacologic agents and also experimenting, if, well, not experimenting, investigating the utility of actual irrigation from above. Let's talk yes. about some of that. Where, when do you reach the point of saying, um, well, we have to take the next step and these are the next steps and let's move forward? Mm -hmm. So, um, very importantly, you talk with somebody who uh, is a referral center. So I'm the end of the line and in this line is in the Netherlands. Uh, 
I always feel a little bit sorry that all the data in the literature come from academic centers. So it gives a, I think, a wrong perspective what happens with children with constipation. So I assume, but I don't, there are no data, that 80% of all children who get advices about toilet training, rewarding systems, um, and, uh, well, some form of laxatives like polyethylene glycol or electrolytes, I think 80 to 90% of the children is helped within six months. Great. Uh, so that's, that's, that's a very important message. So now you talk with an academic doctor who is, uh, one of his favorite topics is constipation. People in the Netherlands know this. So if they have treated these children for a longer period, one year, two years, then they send it to me. And then I have to come up with new strategies. So in the majority of cases, these children have already dealt with the conventional laxative therapies. Mm -hmm. Some of the doctors start um, rectal irrigation themselves, although they are not experienced with it, and they have sometimes they are sometimes anxious to to start it. And then I think it's a cultural thing to start with uh, rectal irrigation because I I think that many people in the world think we are cruel and should not do this in children but you know the data are different than what people think to my opinion uh, and so when they come to my clinic again i try to make the diagnosis as good as or change it if, if necessary but in right, the majority right. of cases it's functional constipation and then indeed i sometimes do these trials where we investigate new drugs like prucalopride or lubiprostone to very uh, new drugs which were successful in uh, in adults with constipation but then the interesting part is that and I al always have to explain it uh, to uh, to people that children are no adults so we have to do these studies again and again and again in children and very mm. disappointingly all the new drugs uh, I was involved in and uh, in in the in the in, in big and large clinical trials failed so placebos oh, no. were as good as the as the as the new laxative so yes i use them even if the trial showed it's not uh, it was not positive but precalopride is a is a colokinetic sometimes works uh, lubiprostone which attracts water uh, via the, uh, the the chloride channels sometimes work um, but that's because all the other drugs failed and then I, I intensively use uh, colonic irrigation if nothing works. Colonic irrigation again from above? No, from 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 behind. From so below. From above. From, below. From, from above, it's very difficult because then in the majority of cases you have to take the children into the hospital uh, and give them a uh, what we call clean prep. I, I don't know if if the same compounds or the compound is polyethylene glycol, but you right. need to drink this uh, substance uh, for two or three liters which is very difficult for children and then we sometimes take these children in the hospital and indeed uh, put a uh, nasogastric tube in and then via this tube we uh, we give this this compound but it's it's very it, the taste is terrible so well, i've had a i've had a colonoscopy i remember that taste yeah so you can because you can use it as a maintenance therapy but it's it's not done uh-huh uh-huh what do you do, I guess, the idea of 
learn to live with it is about as far as we can go with some of these kids, isn't it? That's yeah, disappointing. That's, yeah, that's dif- that's disappointing. Um, so that's very difficult for me. And I think we as pediatricians are really diff- different than, than my adult colleagues. Uh, for instance, in the Netherlands, but probably in, in, in many parts in the world, people are not interested in constipation because you can become 100 years old having a stool problem every single day, but you will never die because of, uh, of constipation. Um, it's long lasting. If you are an adult, it's sometimes really difficult to treat. These people sometimes have behavioral problems. And then it's, I never know if it's the cause uh, of the defecation problems that these, pe- that these people come to have um, behavioral problems uh, or vice versa, nobody knows. So the adult gastroenterologists are mainly interested in doing endoscopies and not talking with their patients. And we as pediatricians are patient, we take care of them, we take care of the parents, uh, and we are... So that's why I don't want to give up. Um, And then I make a decision to go on after I failed with my oral and rectal laxatives in those patients uh, where a, to my opinion, a socially unacceptable situation uh, developed which means that these children are dirty 24 hours a day. So they have problems mm-hmm. at school, problems with their sports, problems at home because uh, parents mm. are angry, uh, mm. disappointed in their child. Uh, and in those very, very, very rare cases, we have a whole team, including a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a, uh, a pediatric surgeon, uh, mental health, other mental health care professionals, a general pediatrician, and then I bring in these very difficult ca- cases what to do. And uh, in, s- in some of these cases, we, we operate these children. And then you as a pathologist would be very disappoint, uh, disappointed because then, of course, we ask the pathologist in these children if he or she can find any abnormalities in the muscles or the, or, or the, or the nerves or the layers in between. And in the majority of cases, we can't find anything, anything. So that's... Well, that's my frustration of doing 20 years of, of this work. Right. Smooth muscle pathology, <laughs> innervation pathology, and specimens yes. like those that you'd be sending us is, it may be there, but we don't know how to recognize it. And that's Exactly. Exactly. So in Great Ormond Street, they, they, they had this uh, very nice pathologist, Fifth Smith, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we sent our biopsy to them because Peter Miller and his team in the old days, uh, published some papers with very rare causes for constipation. Mm-hmm. All the biopsies we sent were negative. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it might be the case that the Dutch are different than the English. I don't know. Oh, definitely. Uh, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that was really disappointing because if, if a child doesn't defecate for a month, then there should be There should be something going on, but, uh, you know, in the majority of cases, we didn't find anything. Can't find it. You've touched on surgery and bringing a a pediatric surgeon in for her contribution or his contribution. What sorts of procedures have you found useful? Again, uh, if I'm really honest, I I can't answer your question. Um, So there are little data in in the literature. Uh, about outcome of 
performing surgery in in children with constipation, even in adults with uh, uh, constipation, and it all again shows you that people are not interested in this in this topic, um, because as I said, it's long lasting. There are behavioral problems, and doctors are adult doctors are not well capable is too is too much, but they're not very handy in in taking care of these two problems. Um, so that's why we had have this team including a pediatric surgeon uh, and then we do a, f a few things uh, which is all new and i don't know if we do it correctly we do a transit study to sh to definitely show that there is a, a slow transit of markers through the colon which is mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. all these children in the case but we have to be sure then secondly we do a barium enema which is for me new and I didn't use it because of the radiation exposure, but it's helpful in these children because um, what we see in these children that they have either a megarectum or a what we call a doligo colon, mm -hmm. uh, which is also new for me. But the problem with uh, the outcome of this particular tool is that we, of course, don't have uh, normal values. Mm -hmm. So we assume that the, the colon is prolonged um so the combination of a marker study uh, the barium enema and sometimes a difficography which is also new for us to use um and then very importantly as well our psychiatrist or psychologist will call the general practitioner will call school uh, to get as much information about the family because as i as we already discussed behavior can be um, an issue as well and if everything is negative, then we do a proposal to the parents to <coughs> to perform either um, an ileostomy, or in some cases we uh, suggest to do a subtotal colectomy with an uh, anastomosis on the rectum. But all these kind of procedures are very risky, mm -hmm. uh, and not only that, um, we have 80% 8-0 complications. Mm -hmm. um, which makes us all, which makes it also stressful for us to really uh, give it a good advice. Gotcha, Mark. I'm. We've touched on a lot of things, and I think I've learned a lot. But we need to move on to something else. We're getting close to the end of the podcast time, and before we close, I definitely want to ask you about another behavioral issue, and that is, what is this I read in the field hockey literature about your being kicked out of the association because of obstreperous behavior on the field hockey? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, nice, that's a nice question at the end. You know, I, I was never kicked out as an active player. <laughs> Okay. Uh, but um, they asked me to be the speaker in the stadium for certain games. Uh, so near to our house. The play by play, the commentary. Yes, the commentary. Well, it's not a particular commentary, but you you are in the high in the in the stadium, yeah. uh, and then you uh, mention uh, the, the 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 people who are playing. So you you just mention the names, but you uh -huh. also. Um, come into play when there is a green or a yellow card and then you yeah. have and then you are in play uh, again but if i am behind a microphone like this <laughs> i sometimes say things which are not appreciated and this was the case during uh, a certain game as well the people huh. laughed they had a lot of fun but the referee um, was not uh, <laughs> amused <laughs> at all <laughs> 
So tell me about the, and I'm going to say the last, I'm going to say your surname, and I'm not going to get it right, but tell me about the Benichach, the Benichach field hockey dynasty. Your sister, you, now one of your children? Yeah, uh, so I think this is a coincidence uh, and a combination of probably talent and discipline, like, like you need to have in medicine as well. Uh, and uh, so my parents were uh, no well, particular good athletes, but indeed my sister and myself uh, were playing in the Dutch uh, national field hockey team in the, in the 80s. Uh, and my sister was doing uh, much better than I did because uh, she became the first woman who carried the flag uh, during the uh, opening ceremony in, in Barcelona in 1992. So that was a huge honor. And she participated in, uh, in three Olympics and I participated myself in one Olympic in, in Seoul but was also the doctor of the national hockey team in uh, 2004 in, in Athens, which was also very nice because as a doctor, I didn't do anything because you are together with the most healthy people in the world at that time. <laughs> uh, so at that time, to, and I'm honest about it, I uh, wrote a little book on, uh, on constipation during the Olympics of uh, 2004. Uh, and indeed, my, uh, my youngest daughter, she's a good hockey player as well, but uh, unfortunately, she just uh, teared all her ligaments in, in her oh, knee. No. Oh, no. Uh, like I did in the Olympics of 88 uh, as well. It's the same knee, the same injury, and hopefully she comes uh, back healthy, but it takes at least a year bef before she will be back. That's great. So even, even when working at the Olympics as the team doc, you managed to bring in the subject of <laughs> constipation. Now that's dedication. Mark, that was great fun, and I think I've learned a lot. <laughs> um, we generally end these podcasts with a request for the person being interviewed to, to name for us a song from his or her own country, his, in his or her own language most of the time, that will give us a little bit of an impression about the interviewer. Uh, you've already given us quite a few strong impressions, but what about <laughs> your song? What song okay. would you like to recommend to the hearer, to those listening to this podcast? Well, uh, firstly, one uh, song came in mind, and it's um, the singer is called Ramse Shafi, uh, and the, the song is called Huil, Bid, Lach, and Bewonder, uh, which means cry, pray, laugh, and admire, is the, is the translation. Uh, and he's a beautiful singer who, who doesn't live anymore, but I, I really love all his songs. But listening to your voice, I also um, thought about Wim Zonneveld, uh, who is uh, one of our uh, former comics in the, uh, in, in, uh, in the Netherlands, who was also a beautiful singer. Uh, and since I live in Amsterdam, uh, most people know this song, and it's called Aan de Amsterdamse Grachten. Along the canals also, of Amsterdam? Yes. Hot damn, I got it. <laughs> and, and, and that's also a beautiful uh, song, and is, uh, well, many people in Amsterdam love the song. Aan de Amsterdamse Grachten heb ik heel mijn leven altijd verpand. Amsterdam in mijn gedachten. Als de mooiste stad van het land, al die Amsterdamse mensen. That's how it goes. Ja.
Heb ik heel mijn hart voor altijd verpand. Amsterdam vult mijn gedachten als de mooiste stad in ons land. Al die Amsterdamse mensen, al die lichtjes avonds laat op het plein. Niemand kan zich beter wensen dan een Amsterdammer te zijn. Er staat een huis aan de gracht in Oud-Amsterdam, waar ik als jochie van acht bij grootmoeder kwam. Nu zit een vreemde meneer in het kamertje voor, en ook die heerlijke zolder werd tot kantoor. Alleen de bomen dromen hoog boven het verkeer en over het If you would like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our Espigan playlist. Thank you, Mark. Once again, that was a lovely experience interviewing you. Thanks, Alex. Um, hopefully. Uh this podcast interested you in the very nice and long-lasting topic of constipation. Bye-bye.